Bible, we are in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 29. We uh, started a new series last week. We, we spent an entire summer going through Revelation, uh, which was great. It was challenging, as you know, if you've read that great book at the end of the Bible. Uh, but we have started a new series, and we're, we do this every kind of beginning of the school year as we have newer people that come and visit us. We want to kind of introduce you to our church. And so the series is called We Are Redeemer. And last week we talked about worshipers, that we as a church, through our ministries, want to see people become worshipers of God. And we were looking at Psalms chapter 1, which I argue is really a great introduction to the entire Bible. It is talking about blessed is the man who delights in the law of God, the word of God. So this week we're going to be talking about disciples. Um, and so we as a church want to produce disciples, people that follow Christ, that live their lives according to the teachings of Christ. And so we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1 because Paul, in this letter that he sends to the church in Colossae, which he never visited this church, but yet still prayed for them and cared for them and was very concerned about their growth, talks about his role or his calling as a minister of the gospel and what its purpose is, which is to to present this church and present believers to maturity in Christ. The title of the sermon is For Your Sake, For Your Sake. And uh, kind of a, a main idea um, to kind of summarize what this teaching is going to be about is God's grace, God's grace uh, in disciple makers to toil, uh, to struggle, to suffer for the sake of Christ's church knowing the mystery of Christ and all wisdom so that they may be presented mature in Christ. Mature in Christ. Um, as a way of, well, let me read Colossians 1, and then we'll, I'll pray, and then we'll kind of get into the, into the sermon. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 29. This is the Apostle Paul. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you also for the life of Paul who instructs us, Lord, how we should think about our roles, not only as pastors, but as also as fellow Christians. That our role, Lord, is to be servants for the sake of others. Not for the sake of myself, but for the sake of others. Lord, teach us today, Lord, how to be disciple-makers, to be concerned, to work hard, to suffer for the sake of discipling people and proclaiming your truth that may be presented mature in Christ. Help us, Lord, to understand and to 
know, Lord, how to do that and to be encouraged and empowered to do that. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us. We pray for fellow church people, fellow saints that go to church here who are traveling. We pray that you would keep them safe and bring them back safely. Encourage them this day, the Lord's day. Lord, we thank you for the students that are here. We pray for them as they deal with the, the COVID uh, crisis on campus. Lord, protect them, watch over them. For those that they know who have gotten COVID while being here, Lord, that they would have a speedy recovery. But Lord, may you present opportunities this semester for the gospel to be proclaimed and for, sa for people to be saved by your word. Empower your church, empower your saints, Lord, to be bold with the gospel. Lord, we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So welcome again to Redeemer Fellowship Church. Um, if you typically go to a more a bigger church that has like a really fancy baptistry pool, we don't have that here. Um, we have a horse trough that I drug up here from outside, washed it, hosed it down, and we filled it up with water. Pastor Denton showed up at 7 this morning and helped me put warmer water in it uh, so that it won't be freezing. Uh, we don't have a, a hot tub that is always 120 degrees or whatever how they keep that temperature in most, uh, most baptistries. So we're doing it old style. This is how they would have done it in the first century most likely. And you, you recognize when you do this why it's so important. Well, what makes you kind of a Baptist, right? Because when, uh, funny story, when we were at St. James West uh, United Methodist Church, we had uh, our first Baptist ba baptism as a church, right? And uh, we're like, hey, can we bring a hoof trough upstairs and fill it up with water and do a baptism, right? And they're like, well, why would you do that? Just get some water in a cup and just sprinkle it on them. Like, why would you do it that way? You don't have to do it that way. Just do it. She was trying to instruct me and didn't on how we should do our baptism. And I'm like, well, that's not how we do it as Baptists. We, uh, we, we believe that the, the person needs to be submerged in water as a representation and an illustration of their death to their old self. And that they're risen to newness and life in Christ, right? You don't get that with sprinkling. Uh, no offense if you are uh, Methodist here or if you go for a church tradition that sprinkles. No offense, but that, that's what we believe as Baptists. Um, and so we're going to be doing a baptism later on in the service. And thank you so much for being here to celebrate that. It brings a lot of joy to us as a church to baptize a new brother in Christ. Um, so very encouraged by that. And thank you for sharing that with us and being here with us. So... Um, I don't know about you. I, I mean, a lot of you here are parents, right? Uh, maybe you want to be a parent one day. I know me. I have three kids now. Uh, and parenthood is great. It's hard to think when you are, when, you, when me, me and my wife, Lisa, were married initially, it's hard to think your life back then when you didn't have kids, right? They become such a defining factor of your life. They become so much a part of who you are and your identity. You no longer are just a Matt, you're no longer just Matt and Lisa. You're Matt, Lisa, Maggie, Lincoln, and Teddy, right? That's that's kind of your family, and you kind of walk with that identity. And that is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just it's hard to go back to remember when you weren't a parent. Um, but the reason why I bring that up is um, why do people want to be parents? Why do people want to have kids? It's an interesting question. You might be thinking, like, what's well, kind of a dumb question? Isn't it pretty obvious why people would want to have kids? But for a lot of people, and I actually had a friend when he got married, um, he didn't want to have kids. And this was an issue in their premarital counseling. He just did not want to have kids. And I kind of would talk to him and instruct him and say, hey, that makes you kind of selfish, Paul. Like, why don't you want to have children? He was just being honest. He did not want the responsibility of being a parent. And, um, and that is kind of the issue. They, I read, was reading an article 
in a magazine about this issue. And usually the issue is people thinking, do they want a carefree life or the experience of parenthood? And they call this kind of the ghost ship that didn't carry us. As if if you chose to be a parent, you never really able to experience a, an, an entire life of just carefree life or care, no responsibility. But if you're not a parent, you've never then got to experience life as a parent. It says that 15% of women today never, will never have kids. Like this is, uh, I think that's the statistic. 15% of women do not have kids right now. And, and they ask women, kind of like, wh- wh- where are you on this issue? Do you want to have kids? Do you wanna, not want to have kids? And this is a decision like, oh, well, I don't know if I want to be burdened down with that responsibility. They kind of want freedom from child care responsibility. This is a, a quote from, a, from a, a wife talking about the decision of what, if she wants to be a mother or not. She says, my husband and I are happily married almost 10 years now. I know for a fact that the happiness and huge love are due to the fact that we have the time, energy, and desire to put each other first. To throw that away for a kid would be nuts. So basically she's like, well, I'm so happy with my husband. We have so much time. We have so much energy. We are able to to really kind of focus on each other. The thought of abandoning that is nuts to her. Of course, if any of you in here have kids... You're like, you, you can't think, why would anyone think that way? That kids are such a blessing. They're such a, such a wonderful thing to have. But she's right. They do take a lot of time. They do take a lot of your energy. Your desires are then changed towards your children. When people think about children and parenthood, they sometimes think of their own death. And sometimes children are a way to, to manage that anxiety. They seek to have leave a legacy, often in the form of children. That people think, I want to be a parent because I know I'm not going to live forever. And to, to pursue or to maintain my legacy, I want to have children and pass, pass down memories and, and experiences. And I, I bring that up. because, like, What does parenthood have to do with discipleship? Because I have the same question to churches and pastors. Why do pastors want people to come to their church? Why do you want people to come to church? That seems like an odd question to ask as well. Why would a pastor even want to ask themselves that question? It seems that pastors in church are striving so much to grow bigger and to grow faster. But have they ever asked the question, do they even want these people in their church at all? Like, what are they going to do with these people? They're not understanding what Paul's talking about here in Colossians 1, the responsibility of leading and caring for people that come to your church. This is a story in a book that I was reading. It said, a minister visiting a family in his congregation noticed there was many children in the house. He asked the mother, how many children do you have? How many children do you have? She began to count off on her fingers, saying, well, there's John, and there's Mary, and there's Lucy, and then there's David. But then the minister interrupted the mother, you interrupted the mother, and said, I don't want to know their names. I just asked for the number. The mother responded, they have names, not numbers. I think what's so interesting about that, that a lot of pastors would probably say the same thing. I just want to know how many, many. I don't really care who they are. Because by knowing people and knowing their stories and knowing their sins, 
You're responsible, as Paul talks about here in Colossians 1, to bring them to maturity in Christ. And that is a burden and a responsibility that, that Paul struggled and toiled over. And some pastors in churches just want people but don't really care to actually disciple them in Christ. We'll learn today people in the pews or chairs are not simply numbers on an attendance growth chart. They are souls that must be discipled to maturity. Too many churches and pastors focus solely on reaching people that they fail to disciple people to maturity in Christ. Why do they fail to disciple people to maturity in Christ? Because it's hard. And it's unnoticeable, right? People don't invite you to conferences because you're struggling with a couple in their, in their premarital counseling or in their marriage. They don't send you to conferences for that. You don't sell books for that. You sell books and conferences when you have a ton of people in your pews and in your chairs. Discipling people to maturity in Christ is unnoticeable. It's littered with failure. It demands your life. Programs do not disciple people, but people struggling and toiling with another to become mature in Christ. Discipling people is littered with failure. Programs don't disciple people. People disciple people. And when people disciple people, they do it in struggle, they do it in toiling, and they do it with suffering. So I want to make the argument to you today that a church must work and toil in struggling manner for the sake of all believers under their care to be mature and fully grown in Christ. So the main point is disciples are made, not born. Disciples are made, not born. So Paul here in, in Colossians chapter 1, so the first subpoint, point A, is the joy of suffering for the sake of the church. The joy of suffering for the sake of the church. And for any children in here, it's hard for you as a child because you're listening to someone talk for a long time. It's hard to pay attention. I understand it's hard for adults to pay attention as well. So three words that I just wanted to kind of throw out there for you to be ask your parents or ask whoever brought you and ask them to explain this in context of the sermon. Number one, joy. Number two, suffering. And number three, mature. Joy, suffering, and mature. The joy of suffering for the sake of the church. So Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering. He rejoices in suffering. Joy is a word that we see throughout the New Testament, right? The shepherds, when they saw baby Jesus, what, they were full of joy. The wise men, when they visited Christ, when they saw the newborn king, when they went to Nazareth, they celebrated they, with joy. It says that the early church in Acts 2.46, that they gathered together and they came together and broke bread together and received their food with gladness. Heart. They had joy when they gathered together to worship God, together to learn more about Christ. They had joy. It says in Acts 8:8 uh, 8, 8, that they were to, that there was much joy in the city because of the believers and what God was doing. Romans 14:17 for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah 8:10 said the joy of the Lord is your strength. So in times of suffering, joy is your strength. So Paul is rejoicing in his suffering. Uh, not because he just loves suffering, but his joy is in Christ. And he realizes, as you see here, that his suffering is not in vain. It has a purpose, and that purpose is for the sake 
of the church in Colossae. His suffering, which he explains in Ephesians and Colossians, is imprisonment, being bound, being in chains. This is his suffering as he was arrested and dragged across the Mediterranean Sea and, and, and basically in jail in Rome waiting his execution. He's writing these letters to fellow believers and, and fellow churches that he is suffering for their sake, that he, the reason why he was arrested, the reason why he suffered was his ministry and his discipleship of believers. And this is his, his he, there's, there's a sense, I think, in the world today where we want to, uh, we want to avoid pain, we want to avoid joy, uh, suffering. The good life is to find comfort and convenience and a painless life. And there's plenty of people and groups and businesses that are willing to provide all those things at a price. But the Bible is encouraging and challenging us to find joy in suffering. And what Paul is saying is that his suffering is, again, he doesn't just enjoy suffering. It's the purpose of his suffering, which is he is committed to people's causes. He's committed to their discipleship. And by his commitment to them, he has pain. He has suffering. When you commit yourself to people, it causes you to have pain. You invite their pain into your life, and you suffer as they suffer. Your struggle with them, your work for them, you're, you're crying with them, they're abandoning you, them, them, them flaking out on a meeting or whatever it is, is a struggle and it's a toil and it's suffering. But when you're committed to people, when you're committed to people being mature in Christ, it will cause pain. But God uses that work in people's lives to bring them to maturity in Christ, which is the cause of much joy. It's what God's doing through people, as you struggle with them and as you suffer with them, he will bring that to maturity in Christ, which causes much joy. So Paul, I mean, Paul mentions this phrase three or four different times, for your sake, for your sake, or for you, I do this. I suffer for your sake. I am a servant for your sake. I was given this task for you, for this sake. And he says that his imprisonment, his bound, his chains are going to produce an eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 But this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory above, beyond all comparison. Paul has this vision in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his, of his, of his toiling and working with people, with churches, that God's going to use it for his glory about, beyond all comparison, and that brings him joy. He recognizes that their identity in Christ, that they will share the glory of Christ. His suffering has resulted in the church in Colossae being reconciled in Christ's body, and he continues to suffer that they may continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they heard. So Paul is rejoicing in his suffering for their sake, and then he continues on in verse 24, which is a very weird phrase. It's hard to understand what he means. He says, I'm filling up what is lacking of oppression of Christ in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking of the tribulation or the suffering of Christ. Is Paul saying 
that uh, Christ's atonement and his work on the cross for your salvation is incomplete, so that Paul has to continue to suffer because Jesus wasn't able to fulfill or be sufficient for your salvation. That's not what Paul's saying at all. I think it's important to take like a little bit of a side aside here and, and to kind of talk about the sufficiency of Christ. That his work on the cross for your salvation is sufficient. Nothing else has to be added to what Christ did on the cross. Um, let me argue from a great passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 through 18. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are, according, uh, these are recorded according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all. And every priest stands daily at, the, at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he had perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them in their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is a forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Him as your Savior and Lord, you are fully saved. Because Christ's work on the cross is sufficient to redeem you completely. It's not like you're 99% the way and then you have to work your way to the other, to the, the, the other 1% to get to the 100 Or that somebody else has to do that work for you. You are completely redeemed in Christ. When Jesus said it is done on the cross, it's not like he's saying, well, it's kind of done. Like, it's somewhat done. Like, I'm kind of halfway there done. No, no, it's done. It was done when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Salvation has been completely secured in Christ. Hence why the disciples or the apostles said in Acts 4.12, There is no salvation in anyone else, for no other name has been given under heaven by which you can be saved. They would be lying if they said, Well, actually, Jesus is somewhat sufficient, but you're going to need to do a little bit more. You're going to have to do a little bit more work, and you're going to have to do a little bit more work after death. Then you'll be fully saved. No, no, no. There is no salvation under heaven except in Christ. Paul doesn't mean that. He's not saying that that's not sufficient. What he's saying is, is that he is suffering and he is adding to the affliction of Christ in his body, which is the church. That as Christians, which Paul was a Christian, we endure trials and we share in Christ's suffering. Romans 8, 17, provided we suffer with him. Uh, Philippians 3, 10, we share in his sufferings. It's talking about Jesus, we share in his sufferings. Revelation 1.9, we're partners in the tribulation. 
Acts 9.4, Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me in response and association to Paul's persecution of the church? Jesus is saying, I am being persecuted because my church, which is my body, is suffering and going through trials. That our identity with Christ's suffering on earth is what Paul is talking about. He identifies with Christ's suffering and he suffers in his flesh. Acts 9.16, how much he must suffer for my sake, Jesus says about Paul. Revelation 6.11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little bit longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be completed who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That we as Christians will endure to the end. We will suffer to identify with Jesus' suffering and we will suffer because that is what we are to do until the end. We will suffer. And Paul suffers for the sake of the church. For the sake of his body, which is the church. He suffers for the church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12, We are inflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. We suffer for the sake of others. One of my favorite missionaries is Adoniram Judson. He was a Baptist missionary uh, in, the, in the 18th century to the nation of Burma. He was the first missionary to Burma, and he brought the gospel to Burma. But here's the problem, though. Judson gets all the glory and the fame, but let me give you, let me give some credit to his wife, Anne. His wife, Anne, was a beast. She was awesome. If you read their story, you, you just like, wow, what a woman. She suffered to care for her husband when he was in prison while she was pregnant. And she suffered and died on the mission field. She suffered. Judson suffered. He, they lost children in Burma. Why? For the sake of the gospel being started in Burma, for a church to be started in Burma. And he suffered, and she suffered for the sake of the church. She suffered. He suffered. Stephen suffered. And his suffering and his martyr and his, and his death led to the establishment of the first great church in Antioch. We think of uh, friends in Nepal. Some of y'all have been to Nepal and you've met brothers and sisters there. They're suffering, right? For the sake of the establishment of the church in Nepal. Suffering for the sake of the body. The second point is the joy of servanthood for the sake of the church. The joy of servanthood for the sake of the church. Paul says here in 2025, 20, which I became a servant for the purpose of the management plan of God. So he became a servant. The gospel, in that word, deaconos, deaconos means to serve. He became a servant, a table waiter, basically. To the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the welfare of the, welfare of the church. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. There's that mistaken identity, though, with a lot of church leaders today who think 
that they're really the, 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 they're the prime, they're the billboard. That's why people are coming is to hear from them and to, and to hear from their wisdom. But they don't, they don't give the, 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 the impression, like Paul does, that they're a servant of the household of God. Paul recognized his role, that he was a servant, a waiter, a slave in the household of God. And the purpose of his servanthood was for the management plan of God, to, to manage the affairs of God's household, to manage the affairs of God's church. And think of someone like a chief of staff. Paul recognized himself that he was not the master, he was not the king. He was just a servant. And he serves at the pleasure of Christ. Christ's pleasure is the sanctification of his people and the proclamation of his gospel message to the lost. This is what brings pleasure to Christ. And Paul is focused on that goal and task, which is to bring his church to maturity in Christ. And the joy in heaven over the salvation of a lost soul. <laughs> Paul recognizes what brings joy in heaven, which is the founding of a lost soul. If you're a Christian today, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a part of the body of Christ, if you're a part of the church, do you recognize that you're an ambassador of the King of Kings, who is greater than the Queen of England, greater than the President of the United States, and greater than the Premier of China? You're an ambassador to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is your role. That is who has you, you're saved to something and to role, and you are a servant in the household of God. And Paul recognized this duty and responsibility, which he gave him for the church to set forth fully the word of God. He gave this role of servanthood to manage the, mouse, the household of God for the church, not for himself, not to glory in his role, but for the church, to serve the church. To set forth the fully, fully the word of God for them. To use his gifts and his, his talents and his, what God had provided him for the caring of people. Too often people today, and you may be one of these people. I know I struggled with this in college. That you think you, uh, you need to use your gifts and talents. Like if, so if you're a part of a, a church, you would only want to serve if you could use your gifts and your talents the way you want them. The problem with that is it's not, you're not serving. You're actually masters over your talents and gifts. You're not using your talents and gifts. You're not using who you are for the sake of the church. You're holding yourself back. We should have the mindset that whatever God needs, whatever the church needs, I'm there and I will provide and I will serve. Think of some great men of the, of the of church. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards were very much like Paul. Paul. They cared for people, while their actual desires would have been to spend more time in study, more time reading, more time writing. Calvin said that since my arrival to Geneva, I can only remember having been granted two hours in which no one had come and disturbed me. The reason why Calvin didn't want to go to Geneva is because all he wanted to do was read and write. He didn't want to be bogged down with pastoral ministry and being involved with people, but God drove him there, and when he was in Geneva, he spent most of his time not reading and writing, but caring for people and being a pastor. Too many seminary grads just want to use their gifts and talents. They don't actually want to serve the church and serve people. They should be rebuked for that. Not ready to die. They just want to care, want caring for people. They don't want to be servants of God and the people of God. The third point is the joy of making known the riches of the glory of the mystery of Christ. 
and this mystery. So Paul is a servant. He suffers to, to make known this mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations. A mystery is not some like Sherlock Holmes novel. This a mystery being used in the New Testament is talking about a secret, a hidden truth that has yet to be revealed. And it's been hidden. We see in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, more about this mystery that Paul is mentioning here. Ephesians 3, chapters, chapter 3, 4 through 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to the sons of man in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that is very similar to what Paul is referring to here. This mystery that is now being revealed to his saints, to whom God wanted to make known to the riches of his glory, of his mystery among the Gentiles. And this mystery is the reconciliation of those who are not Jewish into the household of God. That God has made known his way of salvation, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentile. You're like, what is a Gentile? A Gentile is someone who's not Jewish, which everyone in this room is most likely a Gentile. And if it wasn't for this mystery being revealed, we would all be dead in our sins, outside the household of God, and have no hope of salvation and redemption, and no hope of knowing Christ Jesus and praising his name. But this mystery has now been revealed. God wanted to make this known, which is the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, Christ in the Gentiles. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was, in, at, who was at creation, who was incarnated, who came on earth, who walked among the Jews, who preached the kingdom of God, is now in the Gentiles. That they have been grafted in. And this is the hope of glory to you. Christ is the hope of glory. A share in Christ's glory. Union in Christ and his resurrection. I think it's hard for us to recognize this because we're not first century people. We're, we're so accustomed to the Bible. We're so accustomed to, to the things of God that we sometimes this is a, it's a foreign concept to us. But if you were living in the first century and you were a Greek or a Roman, your chances of understanding God and understanding his word were so little because you had no access to it. But the entire mystery was that you were going to be a part of God's household, even though you're not Jewish. Even though you come from paganism, even though you come from idol worship, that God is going to present the gospel to you and it's going to break your heart and you're going to be redeemed and saved and Christ will dwell with you. That is the hope of glory for us all. That Christ's actual presence will be amongst the lost, those separated from God. Now Christ is in them. They possess, they possess the hope of glory. The fourth point is this, the joy of developing mature disciples of Christ. The joy of developing mature disciples of Christ. So Paul, this, I would say this is the most important passage in this section, this, this one verse in 28. He says, I proclaim him, warning all men and teaching all men in all wisdom. He proclaims, he announces to them, Warnings, or, uh, uh, warnings to every man and teachings to every man and all the wisdom. And this wisdom is the full source of wisdom, which is in Christ. That in Christ is the source of wisdom. 
And he does this. So he's teaching the word of God. He's teaching. Let me actually just read over at Colossians 3.16. I think this helps a little bit in understanding what this wisdom and what he taught them and, and warned them about and proclaimed to them. He said that let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with all thankfulness in your heart to God. So his job and Paul's role was to instruct them and to teach them and to warn them and rebuke them and to correct them in the teachings of Christ, in the teachings of God. He proclaims this to them. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? So that, here's the purpose, so that we may present all men complete in Christ. This is the whole purpose of his ministry. This is the whole purpose of his proclamation. His purpose of his teaching, the purpose of his ministry is to present all men complete in Christ. To full maturity in Christ. Fully mature in spirit in Christ. That all those under his care would be fully grown in Christ. One of my uh, favorite um, um, Puritans that I've gotten to know over the last year is a man, a man named Richard Greenham, which you probably never have heard of. He's not John Owen. He's not Thomas Wets, uh, Watson. He's not someone who's probably written, he hadn't written any books. But Richard Graham suffered and, and, and worked and preached and taught faithfully the word of God to his 150 people in his church, and they rejected him every Sunday. They were closed. Their hearts were closed to his teaching, but he preached faithfully and talk faithfully to them. And this is really the role of the pastor, the role of the teacher, the role of the disciple maker, is to continue to teach the word of God, regardless if people reject it, regardless if people run away from you, or they, re or they don't want to talk to you anymore, they don't want to meet with you anymore, or they don't listen to you. We continue to toil and teach and admonish the words of Christ to people. I want to just get a little emotional. I don't like to get a little emotional, but I'll get a little emotional. I've been at USI now, uh, I think now this is my eighth year. And I have had some good days and some bad days. Like times of joy and times of frustration. And the more I think about all my toil, all my work, I'm reminded of what God has done. Through me, what God has done through my ministry. And I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by Did Nice, who's a pastor here. I'm encouraged by Kale and Kelly Farber. I'm encouraged by Ben and Cindy Flora. I'm encouraged by Megan Holt and C.R. Cummings and Josh Strauss and Eddie and Allison Rodriguez and Nathan Peel and Tyler Fitzsimmons and Rebecca Horn and Ann Powell and Kristen Zaleski and Rache Wagner and Nick and Ben Martin, Jonathan Brown, Megan and Tom, Bohees, Ryan Taylor, Javante Moss, they, and there's many, many others. In the midst of my struggles, in the midst of my working, I had a hard time remembering all of what God has done. But then when you remember, when God places on your heart, when he is so wonderful in his grace, he reminds you about what he has done through your struggles and your suffering, and you are full of joy. You're full of joy. Because why? Because these people that I mentioned, God is presenting to maturity in Christ, and he used me, and he will use others to present them mature in Christ. Because that's what it's all about. 
It's all about that. The struggling, the suffering, the toiling, the work, the, the hanging out with people, the getting rejected by people. It's all about getting them to maturity in Christ. Not to have the largest group of people follow you. Not to have a bunch of people love every word you say, but to present them mature in Christ. Developing strong Christians who know the word and live their lives accordingly is the all the purpose and the goal of ministry and disciple making. The last point here is the joy of God's sufficient grace in our toiling and struggle for mature disciples of Christ. Paul ends here in 29, for this purpose I toil in a struggling manner. For this purpose to present them mature in Christ. I toil in a struggling manner. What, is Paul, what does God tell him in 2 Corinthians 12? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. The power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says that my suffering and my toil and my struggle, I did not produce this on my own. It was purely by the power of God in me and working in me. Because of God's sufficient grace in me, I can say that I toiled and struggled so that churches and the people may be presented mature in Christ or fully grown in Christ through God's power working in him in power not his own ability but in God's power working in him that God's grace is sufficient for him 1 Corinthians I want to read this one passage and then we'll close here 1 Corinthians 15.10 Paul says but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. God's grace is sufficient in our struggles and our toils. And as we work and as we encourage and as we teach and as we admonish people to pursue Christ and, to pursue, and then that, that they would be presented perfect in Christ. I'm going to end with this. For some of you, I don't even know you, right? We've never met. Maybe I met you before you came. Maybe I met you like last year. I don't know you. Look, so what is my relationship to you? And pastors are weird because like for some people who go to churches, they'll hear a pastor preach for years and years and years, but then never met him. So what is his actual relationship to the people who listen, who sit under the teaching? For some of you, I know very well. I've preached to you. I've taught you. I've corrected you. I've guided you. I've shared the gospel with you. I've toiled over you. There's a great phrase, work done for the right reason is its own reward. I'm not an entertainer. I'm not a very entertaining person. I don't think any of y'all laugh the entire time I preach. Now you've laughed, but I didn't tell a joke. I'm not a very good motivational speaker, right? I, I tend to Settle over my words a little bit. I'm not a very good, smooth, motivational speaker. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a guru. I'm not anyone's savior. I'm just a pastor. In a great book called The Care of Souls, the author writes, So by definition, the pastor is always working in the area of sanctification. The Spirit's work of making holy what has been injured and defiled by sin as he preaches, baptizes, distributes communion, counsels, pray, prays, teaches, the pastor is always working in God's area as the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies for himself a holy people called out of darkness to live as light in the dark world. I don't think you can write a better definition of what a pastor is. 
To you all, to you all I say this, is that humbly and with honor, I desire to be your pastor. Not so you can fill a pew or make our church bigger. I say this because I'm called by Christ Jesus to toil and suffer so that you may know Christ and be presented mature in Christ. So I say that with a lot of humility, recognizing that if you came to this church and were discipled by us, I'm taking on the possibility that I will struggle and toil over you. But that is the growth. That is the, the point of church. So that's the reason why disciples is one of the outcomes of our ministries. Involve growth and spiritual maturity that's shown in the spiritual disciplines. By the power of the Holy Spirit given in grace, Pastor Denton, Robert, and I will proclaim, admonish, and teach you in all the wisdom of Christ so that you may be presented mature in Christ. That is a promise. Not by our own abilities, but by the power of God. So that we don't want you to come to the Redeemer because we are a better church than everywhere else. No, we want you to come here because we believe we can help you become mature in Christ. There are definitely more upbeat churches you can go to. There are definitely more programs and resource wealthy churches that you can go to. But we make this commitment to you. We will work hard by the power of God's grace to struggle and toil for your sake. That you may be mature in Christ. We make that promise. It's why we are pastors. It's what we are called to do to serve the household of God, the church, the body of Christ. To suffer, to toil, to struggle for the sake of the church. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for Paul's strong challenge to us, who are pastors, to churches, to leaders, to disciple makers, to Christians. Lord, that you have called us, Lord, to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to proclaim the teachings of Christ, to warn, to teach in all wisdom, so that, that they may be presented mature in Christ. And how you didn't even define it, like, well, all men or all women or all rich people or all poor people or white people or black people. No, all people, all Gentiles, all people that aren't Jewish are those who can hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and then be grown to maturity in Christ. Lord, help Redeemer Fellowship Church produce disciples of Christ. But you use the ministries here, Lord, not just fill, fill pews or to have a really long growth chart, but, Lord, that you may use everything that we do here to present people mature in Christ. That's what we desire. That's what we want. We know that's your will. Lord, make that happen. And, Lord, may we trust and rest in the all-sufficient grace of yours, that you would work your power amongst us and in us. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. And Jacob, uh, Caleb, would come forward. And uh, Lucas.